So today we have a very special guest with us. This past weekend we had a great conference um, on Saturday here where we had so many um, different speakers and different presentations. And today Dr. Tom Woodward is here with us. So why don't we thank him for being here. And he's going to come up in a few, couple minutes. I'm going to just read a little bit of his bio. He, he has a and I, I know this is the shortened version, probably. Uh, he's the president of the C.S. Lewis Society. He's, a, he's been a professor at Trinity College of Florida since 1988. He formerly chaired the Department of World Missions, and presently he's the chairman of the Department of Bible and Theology. He's a graduate of Princeton University. He has a master's in theology and systematic theology. Uh, and he has a PhD from the University of Florida. So one, once more, I should have probably said his bio first before you welcome him. And I know that there's a video that's going to be played first. So check out this video and right afterwards he's going to make his way up. Cells are full of specialized components that perform functions vital to their existence. But how do these components get to the right locations inside the cell to perform their functions? For larger components, a transportation system is needed. Meet the kinesin. Masterpieces of microengineering, kinesins are miniature motorized machines that carry cargo from one part of the cell to another walking along self-assembling highways called microtubules. Known as the workhorses of the cell, kinesins have two feet, or globular heads, that literally walk one foot over another along the microtubule, pulling their cargo to its destination. Each foot possesses two special locations, called binding sites, that interact with other molecules. One site attaches to the microtubule and the other binds with ATP, the energy molecule of the cell. When one foot binds with ATP and uses its energy, the foot flips over, resulting in the walking motion. Each foot has a short neck which is connected to a strand of a long coiled stalk. At the end of the stalk is a fan-shaped tail which holds tightly to the cargo being transported. Kinesins can carry cargo that are many times their own size. Sometimes a kinesin is in danger of getting stuck on the microtubule highway because of blockages caused by other cellular components. To get around such obstacles, multiple motor proteins may be used to carry a single piece of cargo, together providing enough force to break free. Kinesins typically walk away from the center of the cell and toward the cell's periphery. The kinesin's two feet work together efficiently, with one foot holding fast to the microtubule, while the other releases itself and takes a step forward. This coordinated stepwise movement allows kinesin motors to walk as many as 100 steps per second, moving about 8 nanometers with each step. When not carrying cargo, Kinesins can shift to energy-saving mode to conserve fuel until their next job. The kinesin plays a vital role in many cellular processes, not just transporting materials, but also aiding cell replication. The walking kinesin molecular machine. Another example of intelligent design. Are you impressed? Isn't that amazing? Now, when I write... The, uh, in the columns and sides, you know, the edges of my books, and I get really blown away by some comment, some author I'm reading. I have a very sophisticated uh, notation. It's the three-letter word, wow. I think that's a good word to use with this, isn't it? Do you think we can all say it together on the count of three? One, two, three. Wow. And maybe we could add Jesus after the wow, because he's the creator of this. So let's do that, wow, Jesus. You ready? One, two, three. Wow, Jesus. 
Thank you. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is the magnificent genius creator of the universe. Wow. He thought up. I mean, I actually have a more simple digital, by the way, the code for that Kinesin robotic worker is contained in, you guessed it, DNA. This simple model we developed, the Lord put it in my heart to develop a model that was more useful and yet could be used as a witnessing tool. We have a way you can share the gospel. Would you like me to share that later on? Yeah, the four points of the gospel are hidden in the DNA. Woohoo! <laughs> I get carried away when I talk about Jesus. By the way, can I tell you a story about Dartmouth? You know, Dartmouth is kind of the competition of Princeton, but wonderful people come to Jesus at Dartmouth. So, yeah, God's at work in all the Ivy Leagues, you know. I, I got saved at the end of my freshman year. I was kind of a... Darwin was my, almost my hero rather than Jesus, and I, and I was fighting the Christians there. I'll, t I'll get to Dartmouth in just a second. And so I came to faith after a real, like a tough struggle. I was like almost on the edge of atheism, and this is 68, 69, you know, it was the Vietnam War, it was at the height, and, you know, craziness was everywhere, revolt, rebellion. And I was re rebelling against my roots, Christian roots, uh, and and I was in a Bible study, and finally the Lord impressed on me, yeah, I have a sin issue. I have a sin problem. You know, the very truth that C.S. Lewis trying to bring out the radio in his book, Mere, Mere Christianity, you may have heard of that. That was originally radio talks to the whole British nation during World War II. Well, the same, the beginning point, the sin problem, I was like, finally, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've broken the very moral law that I hold everybody else accountable to. And then I realized that Jesus died for my sins. What a revolutionary discovery. That's the heart of the gospel. And when I realized that, finally, in May of 69, I opened my heart to Jesus. And then um, shortly after that, like 20 minutes later, I told him, I don't really ha want to hang out with these Princeton students. They're all a bunch of creationists. I'm still a Darwinist. God went, <laughs> permission denied. And so, and I actually kind of, that kind of pushed the sideways. I did get involved with the group, and I kind of figured out about three months later, wow, the scientific evidence supports creation. God didn't just create the universe so that everything would evolve. He directly created everything. So that's kind of my story. But meanwhile, up at Dartmouth, there was a gal. Uh, this is now 20 years later. I think it was in the uh, maybe in the early eight. No, it was actually the early 90s. And this gal was an agnostic. And she was her friend, uh, who later became her husband, kind of spoiler alert. Uh, but she, he was a grad student. He was involved with the Navigators. And the Navigators, you ever heard of them? Wonderful Christian group. They make disciples everywhere in the world. So the Navigator group at Dartmouth was called the group that studied Jesus. We learn everything we can about Jesus. We love Jesus. And so they would call them, the, you know, these meetings, the Jesus meetings. And that was the way they advertised themselves. So she had heard a little bit about this, but not much. So she comes into the student center, and she's meeting this guy she had just barely met through class. And Craig Parker's there, the leader of the group. And as she comes in, the guy, Eric, says, hey, I want you to, her name was Sally, I think. Sally comes in and says, oh, hi, Eric. Eric says, hey, I want you to meet Craig. She says, who's Craig? Craig's the leader of our group. What group? Oh, the group that studies Jesus. We meet together. We love Jesus. She turns her head like this and kind of, hi, Eric. hi, Craig. Hi, nice to meet you. Craig says, hey, uh, Eric and uh, Sally, I got to go. Got an appointment. So he scoots out. And she says, that's the strangest group I've ever heard of, Eric. Eric says, why? She says, you mean you get together every week, and, you, and you, all you talk about is cheeses, mozzarella cheese, cheddar cheese, your favorite cheeses, Gouda cheese? No, not cheeses, Jesus, the person. Oh. And then later on, she met Jesus. Now she loves Jesus, and I think they like Jesus in their home too. But what we're trying to do is so that Jesus himself, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Jesus, the, the creator of the universe is the savior of mankind. Amen? And that's what we're learning about when we study apologetics. I love apologetics, and that's the area that I uh, have been given the opportunity to bring the C.S. Lewis Society that sprouted up on the Princeton campus about three years after I graduated. I got to know those guys. And when they kind of went out of business and I came off the Dominican Republic mission field, I said, can we bring it to Florida? And they said, sure, because they'd kind of gone into hibernation. 
But this is a hibernation. They didn't come out of hibernation in May, right? <laughs> and just, they just kind of like, somebody put the paddles on quick. <laughs> and, so, and so we brought them to Florida, and that, we've been there uh, 30 years, uh, just a little over 30. So if you want to check us out, if you want to jot down our website or remember, it's pretty easy. Apologetics, that's a pretty famous word, okay, if you study apologetics, dot org. And we're the Netflix of the world of apologetics. We've got a lot of videos, some four at the top that are really short, well, three short, and then there's one longer where I spoke on Jesus versus science in front of almost 7,000 people at a Bangor meeting in Maine. So uh, God, God bless you as we uh, study together a little bit about the evidence from two channels. There are two channels through which God speaks about himself as the creator. There's the channel of evidence from nature, and there's the channel of evidence from Scripture. And they all point to Jesus. Now, of course, there's other evidence. There's evidence from the Bible. And I don't want us to forget for one second, and uh, we have that's our little logo there, uh, by the way, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has a little lantern, right? You know, when you come into Narnia. So that's a hint. That's the Holy Spirit, the, the flames of the Holy Spirit surrounding it, right? Oh, yeah, that's what I had to mention that. So we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? Amen. Psalm 139, and, and even more we know that from even the DNA, has, has the same form as a digital code. It's identical in form to any... Um, amount of specified complexity, the computer code on your hard drive is no different in terms of mathematical structure from a DNA code that's in every one of your 30 trillion cells. Isn't that amazing? That sends a message. So the computer scientist has a special appreciation for DNA because he understands that new files never come into existence through electronic pulses that kind of break into your computer through, you know, let's say a, a, a glitch in the internet or a lightning strike in your neighborhood. Lightning strikes do not write new files. They ruin files if they do anything. And in the same way, accidents of nature, raw events in unplanned, undirected natural processes never create new information. And that's why DNA is the most powerful direct evidence for the Creator God behind all of living matter, all, all the living creatures of the world. So evidence of God's amazing design in stereo, and that's what I'm talking about. Scripture lines up with nature. It's like two speakers in a stereo system. Now what's cool about God's stereo system is that there's like actually a third, a fourth, an eighth, a fifteenth, a hundred and thirty-third uh, channel as well. Isn't that great? Because, uh, I mean, if you read C.S. Lewis, he points out like um, at least another dozen ways that God is speaking through through our, our humanity, uh, like our moral sense, like our sense of aesthetics. You know, like sometimes you even see a painting or hear a symphony, beautiful piece of music, and you just have this sense of transport. You say, wow, there is something beyond just raw matter. I just know it. I can't necessarily tell you how I know it, but I just, you know, intuitively, I know it. And that's God breaking through. So, but I, I think the main two that we see right there in Scripture uh, is taught in Scripture itself is these two main channels. And, of course, Jesus is the heart of all we're saying. Can I repeat that again? The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in the original Greek, of course, is kurios. Kurios. I think we should have more curiosity. Did you like that? Woohoo! Let's be curious. Let's have some curiosity. That means getting closer to the Lord. Let's be curious about the kurios. Do you know what kurios meant in the Greek New... Excuse me, old. Thank you. Let's start over again. Do you know what kurios meant in the Greek Old Testament? Now you say, wait a minute, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. You're right. But the Old Testament was translated into Greek by a group of scholars two centuries before Christ. Isn't that interesting? Uh-huh, the plot thickens. That means by the time that Christ comes around... Okay, born 5 B.C., you know, check out the history on that, Gregorian calendar and all that craziness. But when Christ comes, literally, you know, ju just literally, just 4 or 5 B.C., when he's born, the people living in Palestine were, were reading the Greek New Testament 
they had the Hebrew, uh, excuse me, they, the Greek Old Testament, I'll get it right, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, and they had the Hebrew as well. But they mainly worked out of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And the word for God, the covenant word, Yahweh, has this interesting translation. They chose the word kurios, which meant Lord and Master to translate Yahweh. So when we say Jesus is kurios, that means he is the master of the universe, Yahweh himself. Think of that. When Jesus is Lord, you're saying he is my personal Lord and he is the Lord of all creation. That's saying a lot. And that's, that packs a wallet. That's like saying he is over all and may he be over all in my life. Lord, just I'm opening myself up to you. Show me any way that's, that's false, any place that is not turned over to you, and I just present it to you now. Amen. And he just invites us with a smile on his face, and he just grasps us with this great big hug, and he says, let's get going. I just love the Lord. Do you love him? Because he's, he's just pulling us back, pulling us back constantly, every day, every hour, every second. And so let's just continue. The historic heart of Christianity is where this all is flowing from. And, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection is, the, is what all the nature is really bringing us back to. So I want to kind of begin at the pulsating heart. We're going to get into the science in just a moment. But I thought we should just start at the gospel, the heart. DBR, I call that the core of the gospel. I hope you're sharing the gospel. I was brought here in an Uber ride. Wonderful guy from Ghana. And I said, have you heard about Jesus dying for your sins and rising? Have you read Isaiah 53? He's from Ghana and was active in a church there. And I think he does. I think he was aware. But he says, Isaiah 53, let me write that down. I said, have you read the Gospel of John? He says, oh, what is that called, the Gospel of John? He wrote it down. So I did what I could, right? <laughs> you know, I can't in a 20-minute ride. But it was wonderful because he was enthusiastic and he was ready to hear about the death D burial B and resurrection R. And then you can add an E to that. So if you want to complete the, the sequence, D-B-R-E, E is the eyewitnesses. So I, when I teach this in my class, in my evidence class, my apologetics class, I said, let's add an E. Why? In 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul says, this is the gospel, Christ died for our sins, According to the Scriptures, he was buried. He was raised from the dead, according to the Scriptures. By the way, according to what Scriptures? Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, even Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. You mean Yahweh will be pierced? Yes, Yahweh on the cross. Whew. It's in powerful evidence. But then what, what he brings out, he spends another four verses listing eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness and then a group of eyewitnesses and then another eyewitness and then another eyewitness. Why would he do that? Because eyewitness evidence is data. Now, if you're talking to a scientist, you know what he respects the most? Data, which means recorded, carefully accumulated evidence. Um, that has been observed. When, when I teach in my classes, we talk about what is the difference between theory and data. Theory is your idea, and then what do you do? You check it against the data, the evidence. Paul here is summarizing it, but it wasn't Paul's summary. If you check it back, he learned that summary earlier, and then you can check it back. He learned that from others who got it probably from a, a carefully uh, put together, carefully compiled, I think that's probably the best word, carefully compiled list of eyewitnesses that goes back to within a year and a half of the events. So if Jesus was crucified in 33, this list dates to about 35. Do you see how exciting that is? You don't have time for legends to develop. You don't even have time for any kind of like, you know, just mythological growth or, or just storytelling. This is like the, the, the ticker, you know, the, the little line that goes across the bottom of your TV giving the latest update, you know, the news alert, 
I could put in some news channel, but I will skip that. <laughs> so, but what I'm trying to say is this is incredibly exciting, and of course, the predictions I mentioned already are there in the Old Testament. Again, science says if you have a theory that's predicting the future, and if that event comes true, that theory is automatically, automatically catapulted to a higher level of respect. Does the Bible have any, any predictions? Yes, it's tons of predictions. So I'll just give you one prediction. Daniel, 540 B.C., predicted uh, through actually a, a revelation from Gabriel that there would be a countdown, and here is the actual timeline. The 444, um, the, the prediction came about 80 years before that. In 444, you know what happened? A decree was given to rebuild Jerusalem. That began clicking off the years. Exactly 483 years later, the Messiah came. How many years later was the Messiah predicted to come and die? 483 years. So that means Daniel chapter 9, if you look at the end of Daniel chapter 9, gives probably the single most spectacular prediction of any single event in the entire Bible. And it isn't just a minor event. It's an event we would say is the hinge of history. It's the event that we call the salvation event. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. <sighs> Case closed. Judeo-Christianity, and I'm going to link Judaism with Christianity as one massive true religion. Of course, our Jewish friends that are not messianic need to you know, open their hearts to Jesus as Messiah. Amen? Yeah, they need to find that Jesus is their Messiah and receive him uh, ASAP. So those are just two, uh, those kind of like the Jesus focuses where we're leading to as our study. Now, let's shift gears and go more into the science side. How do I share, when I take this onto a college campus, how do I share the message of design? Well, I share it very carefully, <laughs> you know. How do you work with any area that's sort of populated with misconceptions and a lot of, quite frankly, bad PR? There's a lot of bad press out there that says intelligent design is just creationism in a cheap tuxedo. Oh, let's start from scratch. Design is something that you can detect. If I poured out a bunch of Scrabble pieces on the floor and walked away, and if I came back and saw Pastor Carlos is going to take everyone out for lunch today, please meet at such and such. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying that that's a prophecy. That was probably a very poorly chosen illustration, okay? This is just a dream, okay? All right. Then everybody would say, oh, yeah, look what random dropping of Scrabble pieces could accomplish. Other people would say, no, I think somebody planned that. And then, and then maybe Pastor Carlos would say, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, when you see a pattern that has a, a purposeful arrangement of parts, let me say that again. When you see a pattern that has a purposeful arrangement of parts, what do you recognize? Design. You got it. That is, in short, the case for design or the way you reason to design. Let's see a good example. Look what wind and rain can, can accomplish through eons of erosion. Isn't it amazing what erosion can do on certain hills? Oh, of course not. No one would believe that, even if you were from, I don't know, some, from some tribe in Irian Jaya from New Guinea, and you've never heard anything about Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, etc., Lincoln. You would recognize those faces. And, of course, if you knew their pictures from the, you know, the paintings in the National Gallery or you know, on money, uh, the, the um, bills, dollar bills, you would instantly recognize them. You just, your only question is now, who is it? And then you kind of you know, go to Wikipedia or Google, right? Because you forget the, the, the crazy sculptor's name. Wonderful guy, right? It took him, what, 10 years, carefully chipping away and blasting away, and he got it done. Did a quite an amazing job. 
So the Mount Rushmore example, you don't have to go into any holy textbook. You know, I love the Bible. I teach the Bible. I believe it's historically true, even Genesis 1 through 11. So I have no problem. So I, I embrace and, and accept and wonderfully um, help out in creation teaching. But the design inference, or the, what we call the design conclusion, is solid, and it's based on fact and good reasoning. Does that sound, does that sound like a, an, an okay thus far? Am I okay? Okay. So let's proceed and see how far we can go. Nature, according to Darwin, has a better idea. This is where the opposition comes in. Darwin comes along 1859, and he never explained where the first life form came, comes in. He just says first life pops in, and it turns into more complex. There's a trilobite, and then we, that comes into a four-footed mammalian species, and then the higher, highest life form, uh, Charles Darwin himself. Okay, and, and, and then, of course, that, that's where we are. Who, who knows where we'll evolve from here? So what I'd say is this is his idea. But it has grown, uh, as it were, into a problematic area over the last hundred and, well, 120 years uh, since it was published uh, was, was the time when it started to really hit some, some crosswinds, some, some blowback, when the DNA was discovered to have an informational pattern that defied any story of being put together by chance. There's just too much information, too much digital letter-by-letter letter information jammed into that pattern to be explained by chance. And, in, and even some famous atheists started to jump ship. Let me just show you two of them. I could go into 25 examples, but let me select two. Antony Flew, probably the most famous atheist in the United States, or the world, I should say. He was from Britain and taught most of his life in Great Britain. He was the world's most, notori no, most notorious atheist from the 50s on through the early 2000s. He announced in summer, um, actually it was a little bit after summer, in 2004, he believes now in God due to the design evidence, DNA and the fine-tuning of the cosmos. That is like the Dalai Lama saying, um, I, I totally reject what I've taught my whole life, and now I'm becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. That's like the most famous atheist uh, uh, in, in your family suddenly becoming the number one evangelist. Sounds like a Saul Paul conversion, doesn't it? That's what happened to the number one atheist in the world less than, well, right at 15 years ago. I'd say that's a point of celebration. Okay, and in his uh, book that he wrote about it, he even allowed, he hadn't come quite into the Christian fold, and he allowed for the publication of evidence for the resurrection. Another guy, he hasn't uh, come out of atheism, but he has declared his opposition to Darwin. Thomas Nagel began to research evidence for design, and he came out with a book, Mind and Cosmos. The subtitle, I don't know if you can see it, it's very, very subtle slap in the face, why the materialist, neo-Darwinist conception of nature is almost certainly false. Yeah, why the materialist, Neo-Darwinist conception of nature is almost certainly false. He's hedging his bet just a little bit. But he was the, and remains to this day the number one philosopher in the entire world in consciousness. Required reading for any PhD student who studies consciousness. He says, no, I'm still an atheist. But one thing I know is that Darwin's system has completely collapsed based on all the evidence we now have. Isn't that amazing? You can feel the ground shaking underneath you. You can see the, the plates of, of, of the paradigms. They call these the big theory, the biggest theories. The paradigm shifts are happening and they're crashing and colliding. So the creation is, is blaring out its music in two channels, in stereo, scripture and nature. Both are blending their music beautifully. And I'll just kind of hit some points. I love God's artistry. Do you just love to look at pictures of the cosmos? when you see them maybe on your computer, those NASA. What I like about NASA picture is that they're free, <laughs> right? You don't have to pay a penny for them. They're paid by the, your government tax dollars. National Aeronautics and Space. Notice national. Your, your tax money pays for it. And that's the cat's eye nebula. Don't you like that? Does that not just speak of 
Well, only God could have thought of something so cool like that. Can you imagine what that nebula might be called? What does it look like? Horse head. Let me just go ahead and move it to one side, and you can see a close-up. Isn't that cool? God, specifically Jesus, Jesus, created the horse head nebula. I love the horse head nebula. Do you love barred spirals? Spiral galaxies often have a bar going through the middle. And so they, it's like a, a thick section. Some of the spiral galaxies are now known to be super thin galaxies. They're very entertaining. They're thinner than, you remember those 33 LP records some of us had as kids or teens? Remember that? And, and, and it's like you, you turn it on the edge and it's very thin. Some of the new galaxies, they're called thin profile. Only God could have thought to create a galaxy so beautiful as that. Pillars of creation inside our Milky, Milky Way. Isn't that fantastic? And they call it pillars of creation because according to the theory, and I don't know, they, they may be right, there's actually star creation going on right now inside those pillars. I think that's fantastic. We actually get to see the nursery. It's like you can hear the wah, wah, as baby stars are coming into as it were, the beginning of their life cycle. So can you guess what that uh, upper galaxy is called? Wedding ring. Yes, yeah, the wedding ring galaxy. And this, of course, I'm going to bring in some scriptures. Psalm 19.1 gives us the kind of the headline, The heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, and the firmament shows His handiwork. So God, in that very psalm, makes it clear that the words of the heavens do not exactly have, you know, a certain Hebrew, or we would say English syntax, but their message is heard very clearly as anybody looks up at the heavens or looks out at the flowers and the trees and the beautiful animals. We have a cocker spaniel at home, Darby, and I met Darvi here. Thank you. I guess he's maybe... Yeah, and I, I made the mistake. Oh, you have the same name. Well, he, he informed me it's D-A-R-V, right? But, uh, but anyway, uh, but I mean, I just love dogs, and I appreciate cats too. But um, I'm sorry. I, I would have used a stronger word. But anyway, uh, can you imagine what this galaxy is called? It's actually a word for a very wide brim hat used in Mexico. It starts with an S. Sombrero. You got it. Sombrero galaxy. Probably the most famous named galaxy. It's about, uh, I think, 20 million light years away from us. And let's put the uh, Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, I love this, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 33. Isn't that fantastic? It's tremendous. So you have creation Scripture, I could have quoted Genesis 1 or 2. That would have been great. But there's creation Scripture exploding almost across every one of the 39 Old Testament books and many, many of the 27 New Testament books. You see teaching on creation just bubbling up, and it's like a tsunami from everywhere in the Old Testament. I love it. And yet this, the, that tsunami has a point to it. It points to Jesus. Jesus made you and me for a, for a purpose, a beautiful purpose. Zechariah 12.1, arguably the most beautiful single verse on creation in the Old Testament. I'll get this really quick. The Lord is speaking. It's the beginning of a prophecy, and he just says, let me tell you who's prophesying. Let me t explain the source. The Lord is speaking, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. Pretty strong, isn't it? That's like a triple-layer cake. Have you ever had a triple-layer cake? It's like, it's like, you know, wow, two layers is great. That's three layers with the icing, you know, in between and on top, nice, nice thick icing with maybe coconut sprinkled. I just love it. Okay. And the three layers are he created the universe. By the way, they found out just in the last, within the last hundred years, the universe is expanding. There are five other places I could take you, three of them in Isaiah, where it says something almost identical. The Lord stretches out the heavens. So in this case, about 500 years B.C., in Isaiah's case, 700 years B.C., 
So that's 27 centuries ago. The Bible was declaring the big picture of the universe, which science only discovered 26 centuries later. So, the, so science is catching up to the Bible. The science has some catching up to do. Isn't that great? Uh, so I think it's just fantastic. Who lays the foundation of the earth. We're moving from astronomy to geology now. And, then, and who forms the spirit of man within him. We're now moving to the most intimate and most unique, most godlike part of man. The part that survives death. The part that can actually sense right and wrong. That can have communion. That can experience personhood that lives forever and ever. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So we've moved from the most big thing to the most precious thing, and everything along the way is amazing. God is amazing, and Jesus is amazing because he is the creator, as we'll now learn hopping into the New Testament. Did you know the Apostle Paul went to Harvard University? No, I didn't apply to Harvard. I did apply to Yale. By the grace of God, I did get accepted to Yale and my, made my dad, who was a Princeton graduate, eternally happy by turning down Yale to go to Princeton. Yeah, my, so my dad is still doing backflips in heaven. Okay. So, no, I have nothing against Yale. Yale's a very fine school, especially in the fact that one of their most famous computer scientists just declared May 2nd, David Galertner, he has now rejected Darwinism. Have you heard about that? Galertner. If you want to write his noun, just Google David, G-E-L-E-R-N-T-E-R. G-E-L-G-E-L-E-R-N-T-E-R. It's an amazing story. He's, he read the, the book Darwin's Doubt by my friend Steve Meyer, Stephen Meyer, and he declared publicly, and you can actually read the essay. It's on the Internet, but it, there's, there's tons of, uh, of, you know, go through Google search. You can get tons of amazing reports. And now it's like a delayed reaction, bomb after bomb after bomb. And this guy almost had his hand blown off by that crazy Unabomber. Remember in the 1990s, a guy up in the woods was sending bombs around, and he, he received one, and I think it uh, blew off half of his hand. But anyway, so, uh, but, but back to this. Uh, when Paul came, he didn't come to literal Harvard. He came to the Harvard of his day, which was Athens, where all the smart people were hanging out, debating, philosophizing, trying to figure out what the world was about. And this is what Paul said. I'm just going to stand up here and just share it with you. For Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's a powerful creation statement, isn't it? And that's the way he began his message to the philosophers. The philosophers. Notice how he concludes. From one man, talking about Adam, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Yeah, God reaching out. And he says, God therefore sent his son Jesus, raised him from the dead to give evidence of who would be the judge of all mankind. I think that's pretty spectacular. So God created the universe, holds us accountable, and he will actually judge. And the only way to avoid judgment is to turn to the judge himself who bore the wrath of God and receive him. And God says, I will then make you my child. I've already paid for the wrath. I've already died in your place. Isn't that a spectacular salvation? It is amazing, and it is true. And Jesus, as it were, penetrated the Harvard University that day and brought some disciples, and the rest is history. Hebrews 1, creation and providence is brought out. It says, He has spoken to us by His Son, through whom He made the universe. Now, I can make a, an Italian, uh, Italian dish called Johnny Marzetti. My wife makes a tremendous uh, dish herself, okay, an Italian dish. God doesn't make Italian dishes ordinarily. He makes a universe. That's a scale of difference, okay, a little bit higher. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and that is called, that is called providence. Providence is the doctrine. Let me go to the correct end. Providence is the doctrine that teaches that God is in control. God rules. 
And I'm just going to go real quickly through Colossians 1 also. For by him and all, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Isn't that spectacular? Notice also what he adds, right after that, in him all things hold together. So God, through Jesus, created everything, and then he sustains everything. He created everything, and he keeps everything in operation. So he created you, and he keeps your body running because of his loving care and his constant, powerful will, day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. Thank you, Jesus, for keeping me going. That could be part of our praise life. And, uh, and uh, while we hear this music, uh, even the atheists are seeing in the, in the universe itself this incredible thing of fine-tuning. The common sense interpretation, and this guy was an atheist when he said this, interpretation of the data suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. Now, when, when an atheist says, I see something like a super-intellect who has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, then we know that there is a God who made us. The fine-tuning of the cosmic elements is seen in the exact mass of the particles that make up even the uh, atoms that we are made out of. The forces of nature that hold us together are exactly set just so that our bodies and so that even the galaxies can hold together. Star burning is depending on several of the forces to be balanced to 40 decimal places. So the law of gravity, rather the exact force factor of gravity and the force factor of electromagnetism have to be co-related to a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of 1% in order for our sun to, bar, to be able to provide energy in a stable, ongoing format. Isn't that amazing? God loves us so much that he has fine-tuned even the laws of physics. The expansion rate of the universe. Remember the, we were talking about how God stretched out the universe? You know how finely tuned the expansion rate is? 65 powers. That's a trillionth of 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 1%. Thank you, God, for fine-tuning that expansion. Well, wait a minute. Someone said, not so fast. Through the discover, uh, discovery of dark energy, it actually became another 60 decimal places more amazing. That change was made in the last 10 years. So you have to have 60 more zeros to the fine-tuning. So I'll just conclude with this. DNA itself, I think, is the ultimate witness. Not only is there information along the pattern of these 21 rungs, there are, as you see there, little add-ons these methyl tags, and if you want to get one of these, I basically, I, I will just basically, I, I don't want to take any more of these models home. I will show you how it works. See me in the lobby, and uh, just, just see me if you would like one of these, okay? Okay, because uh, I'm, I'm cutting a, a pretty significant deal so that everybody who wants to use one of these in ministry can do that. But these little methyl tags are on-off switches, they're, they're made of methane, carbon, and three hydrogens, and they're added, we now know, to a certain spot in each gene to turn it off and give it a rest. So when the genetics uh, reaches this new level of knowing that there are in one cell 30 million of these on-off switches, and they have to be carefully placed in just the right spot, the scientists' heads almost begin to explode because they say, we didn't even know that there was an additional layer of data or of information on top of the DNA. And then they discovered a few years after that that there's an, a, a one layer above that, lurking above that they didn't know about, control data. And then they discovered two layers above that. And now they discovered layers that are stretching out through the cell and even a layer of information embedded in the cell membrane they never noticed. It's just incredible. We're more high-tech than they could ever dream of. This 21-rung model is pretty, I think, interesting, but you would have to have 145 million of these to equal the DNA in one human cell. 145 million. I figured out just a few months ago, if I were to lay this on a football field, you know, lay it out and then put another one tight next to it, another one, another one, and then keep going row after row until the whole football field was covered, I'm not even close to that. 
So that I'd have to do a second layer, a third layer. I would go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of layers. I'd have to get up to 350 feet tall, stack at that high, and then I reach to the level of the DNA in one cell. That's how much DNA is in one cell. And now you multiply that football field, mountain of DNA, times 30 trillion, 30 trillion football field mountains, and that's how much DNA is in your body. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? And every one of those letters is handwritten, as it were, by the wisdom and genius of God, a creator God. Okay. God is good. Amen? So what I'd love to do is just, as I close, ATCG, we have a color code. If you just uh, go visit our website, DNA and Beyond. So here's the DNA and those two little methotags goes just beyond it, right? So dnaandbeyond.org. We have a two-minute video where a guy who I trained, he was our, you know, our super genius, really great guy. He loves the Lord. He's pastoring in the area now. He was like um, our, our valedictorian of our college last year, Griffin Foxworth. And he, and he sings a little song. Actually, we have a, a dub in. But if, you, if I can just say as I close here, if you go there and watch our, 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 our thing, and, and whatever the price is there, I'll cut it in half, okay, if you just contact me, and you can do that through. Or if you can do oh, that same price I'm offering today, okay? If you want this, ATCG, the four letters. That's, by the way, adenine, thymine, cytosine, cytosine, guanine. You have to learn this in junior high or high school now here in, here in Elizabeth area. Okay. We have another idea for ATCG, and we use the colors. Uh, Azure Azul for, 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 the, for the A. T is tiger tangerine. That's the orange. We, we call it tiger tangerine. And then C is, uh, is crimson, and G is green. Okay, but then we have um, for four letters, Adam created perfect in God's image. T, temptation comes along through Satan, seduces Adam into the downward spiral of sin. And whoops, we're in that same spiral. But the good news is C, Christ comes into the picture, dies for us and rises again. By the way, red reminds us of his shed blood. That's C for Christ. And then G is green. That's grace. That's grace. By grace, we respond. We don't do any works. We receive the free gift. When you see green at a, at a, at a stoplight, what do you do? You go. You receive the grace gift. So A, T, C, G. Adam, temptation, Christ, and grace. And I think that this may be something that you could use, that you could share the message, first about the digital information that points to a God, and then the spiritual information that points to Christ. And my prayer is that God would get us excited and learning all we can about this stereo effect. Scripture and nature, the music blends perfectly. God bless you. Can I pray for you? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this wonderful church, for this fantastic pastoral staff, for these amazing brothers and sisters. What a great worship time. Lord, there was a flood of, uh, of your spirit. There was like a tsunami here I could sense and feel and be participant in. We pray that you would help us to, like the people at Dartmouth, to love Jesus. Maybe we like different kinds of uh, Gouda cheese and cheddar cheese, but most of all, we love the person of Jesus. Uh, we just love you, and we want to serve you and give our lives to you and let you uh, be the daily Lord of our life because you are the Yahweh Lord of the universe. We thank you for creating us for a purpose and bless us today as we leave here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. God bless you. Why don't we thank Dr. Woodward for being here with us today. But before we leave, before we leave, I know um, so, some of us were, were, were hungry, or st especially after they saw the Scrabble pieces that I was going to take you off for lunch. You're like, I got to go eat some lunch with uh, Pastor Carlos. Just know if we're going to eat lunch, it's going to be Chinese food one day, all right? So uh, I love Chinese food, but um, that's a different topic. But one of the most amazing things I think that even all of us in hearing everything it's like for some of us, m most of us probably, it's so hard to wrap our minds around even the different details that was shared and imagine everything that God has done. One of the biggest problems that sometimes we do is that we make God small in our eyes. We limit God in our own life. Think of the design that God has done throughout all creation, throughout our own bodies, and the way that he works. 
But yet when there's things that happen in our lives that kind of like shocks our mind or kind of like rocks our world, we very quickly make God small in our minds. We forget who we serve. We forget how mighty and powerful he is. So in closing, I think it's an amazing moment for all of us just to be able to stand believing in God and telling God, God, I'm sorry for making you too small in my mind and in my heart. And I want you to see your greatness in the middle of what I'm going through today. So if that's you, I want you just to stand as we close in prayer. You're asking God to give you a fresh revelation of his greatness. You're declaring to God that God, I'm sorry for allowing these things, these things, these everyday small things rock my world when you created this entire universe, you created me as well, and you're in all the details, and he hasn't forgotten you. you. Do you really think he's not in the details of your life when he's in the details of your body, when he's in the details of the universe? He's everywhere. But it's just so many times the circumstances blind us. So many times the problems cause us to block our view of God. But today, we want to just give God everything. Father God, right now, this moment, as we're gathered and standing and after hearing this amazing teaching of your greatness, God, of just the way that you've designed everything within us and throughout this entire world, God, I pray that you would give every single person here a fresh revelation, Lord God, within our heart and soul, Lord God, of who you are. God, that even the words that were shared today, Lord God, that you would bring it back to our remembrance. That we wouldn't forget how great and amazing you are when our problems are shouting at us. God, that we would turn those shouts and redirect them to you, God, and that we would shout praise and worship to you, Lord God. That we would silence even the whispers of the enemy and just shout greatly how amazing you are. God, thank you for who you are. And even now, Lord God, we just fix our eyes on you. And we just want to be immersed by your presence, not immersed by our problems, our circumstances, our debt, our situations at home, our problems with people that might be in our lives. God, we just want more of you, immersed in you. So God, we worship you. We declare that you are mighty and powerful God, not only throughout scripture and when you created everything, but today, this very day and this very moment. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen, amen. Give someone a hug before you leave.